Hello and welcome to Theory Lab. This is Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society's Research Department. Here with my colleague Susanna Greer because we just interviewed uh, Dr. Michael Kinch of WashU in St. Louis. Susanna, tell us um, why did we interview the good Dr. Kinch? Oh, Joe. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to give you a quiz and we'll go from there. So have you ever been a professor at Purdue University where you were doing some pretty fantastic research in breast cancer and prostate cancer? And then might you have gone on to found an oncology program at a biotech company, Metamune? And then, because you had done so many cool things to transfer technologies and innovations from bench to bedside, maybe you became vice chancellor at WashU. Any if of those all, things? If all the quizzes I'd taken in my life had been this easy, I might have become associate vice chancellor at WashU. But no, no, and no are my answers. <laughs> Yeah, me neither. And on top of that, if we didn't already feel great enough about ourselves, Michael is also a tri-published author. So he has written three books. Um, the first book he wrote, he talked to us about just a little bit, was kind of tracking the history of the pharmaceutical industry and a, a really interesting read on his personal experiences. Um, he then wrote Between Hope and Fear, which is a great book, um, kind of analyzing the anti-vaccine movement in the United States and giving us some historical perspectives and, and really forward-thinking analysis of where that movement is now. The book that we spent most of our time talking about today, though, was uh, this really fantastic book called the End of the Beginning, Cancer, Immunity, and the Future of a Cure. And honestly, I mean, this is a great book. I, it took me about you know, four days to read it. It was an easy read, but it, ha it is full with just some fantastic anecdotes um, tracing the history of immunotherapy and immuno-oncology. And it really gives the reader, whether you're a scientist or a science lover or someone who's just interested in understanding more about cancer and the role the immune system plays, it's a fantastic both historical perspective and brings you right up to the date of where we are in understanding immunotherapy. Um, before we start, I want to say that this book, I had a preprint. It's actually going to be released on April the 2nd. And this this bit just tells you what a really fantastic guy that Michael is. For every time he does a book signing, 100% of the proceeds go to the American Cancer Society. So for all you Theory Lab listeners, listen to the podcast and then get yourself out to a book signing um, from Michael Kench, The End of the Beginning. So Michael, I'm really interested to learn more about how this fantastic book, The End of the Beginning, came to be. Um, I've read it and I was spent a few days thinking about why haven't I done anything this creative and wonderful. It is, it is truly remarkable and I, I think that a lot of our scientific colleagues kind of have this creative flow running through them where they'd really like to uh, bring either a painting or a book or a poem um, 
from the outside or from the inside to the outside. And but very few of us ever do that. And you have. In fact, you've done it twice. This is your second book. And oh, this is your third. Oh, fantastic. Well, (laughs) I was aware of Between Hope and Fear. What's the other book that I've missed? Yes. So my first book, and it's easy to have missed, was tracking the history of the pharmaceutical industry. And Ah. really, it's the history of how new medicines were developed. Again, using all of the books that I write are targeting complex subjects to a general audience. And the way that I start these books is to ask the question, what book would I want to read? Um, And then I look on in the bookstores or, or on Amazon. And if I can't find it, then that's a good subject to start with. So when did you know that, so you said you, you think about the kind of things that you would like to read, I guess, from both a fun perspective and a professional perspective and maybe kind of combining the two. Um, So what was your motivation to actually kind of put pen to paper? I think it takes a lot to get over that. That's a pretty big hurdle. It is. Um, The motivation for the first book was actually very strange in that um, I had accepted a job. I was working at Yale University, and I had accepted a job at Washington University in St. Louis that was to begin during my daughter's senior year in high school. And um, I was not going to win Parent of the Parent of the Year award if I pulled her out of her senior year. So I basically moved alone to St. Louis and waited until the school year was out, and then the rest of the family came and, and joined us in St. Louis. So I figured I had this free time, and I could either watch TV or I could do something productive. And so that was the, the genesis of the first book. And I have to admit, when you've written the first book and you've gotten it over, you immediately start to get the itch of, I got to do this again. And so that led to the vaccine book. And I wrote a book on vaccines with the recognition early on in, in uh, 2016 that this anti-vax movement, which was moving pretty heavily in Europe, was starting to catch pace in the United States as well and and sort of anticipated that this might become a bigger problem. And sadly, that was accurate. And we're now experiencing very significant problems uh, with a growing anti-vax movement in the United States. Right. So I imagine that it's probably along the same lines that you were motivated to write about in the end of the beginning about cancer immunotherapy. And because there's, I guess, the the opposite in a way of the anti-vax movement. There's a lot of excitement around immunotherapy, but also a lack of probably education, and that's our fault, um, but also a lot of a lack of appreciation of the immense amount of work that has gone to get us from, uh, you know, where we've been to where we are today. And I think, as you say, very elegantly, kind of on the cusp of um, uh, some real revolutionary changes. But I'd love to hear about your motivation for this book. Absolutely. And you hit it on the head. It was, first of all, nice to write a happy book um, that that had a very positive outcome, because obviously the, the vaccine book doesn't end as well. Maybe in the future, it will, I'm convinced. But the motivation for this book was that we are amidst a truly revolutionary period where diseases that assumed were going to kill the patient are now infinitely treatable. And uh, there was a joke back, I I was head of oncology at a company by the name of Metamune um, in Maryland. And there was a joke with regards to, a dark joke, with regards to the disease of metastatic melanoma, that it was known as the black death of drug discovery. And the really dark side of the joke is that melanoma itself tends to be a physically dark disease, but also everything that had been tried against melanoma had failed. And um, suddenly now, since about 2012, nothing can fail. 
uh, we have seen remarkable, truly mir miraculous um, outcomes with metastatic melanoma. Well, and, I... I'm sorry, and all of that really can be attributed to immune therapy, harnessing the immune system to attack the tumor. Well, I very much enjoyed the book, and I, I think many, many people will. It's, it's not only educational, but it's also just fun. And you shared some really interesting anecdotes. Um, I will forever remember the reference to the B and T of uh, bullshit being used to describe B and T cells in the early days of our understanding of immune cells and how they develop. And it was fascinating. I And I've read... I'm an immunologist. I've read a ton in this area and I've just, I learned so much and I appreciated the way that you included these fun stories to kind of keep the reader engaged. But um, I, I would love to know, did you have a favorite story? So two questions. One, do you have a favorite story or stories that you uncovered? And my other one would be, how did you, how did you do it? How did you go about your research? So the, the second part is, is the easier one. And that is that I approach this like I do any scientific subject, and I just keep asking the question, why? So you'll, you'll think, well, okay, there are these wonderful immune therapies. Well, why are they there? And when you start to ask and, and see the, the outcomes of those why questions, it invariably leads to another and another. And my writing can certainly be described as tangential. Um, and it's because it's not, not always obvious how point A leads to point B. So I just, when I'm researching, I go through and I ask, well, what are the foundational stories? And that leads to, to what is probably my favorite story. And that is that um, there was a physician in New York City that uh, had, and this is in the late 1800s, that had a, a patient come in. She was a, a vivacious young girl, probably 18, 19 years of age. And she had a, a bump on her hand. And over the following six to nine months, that bump evolved into a deadly disease that essentially killed her. And he was just very taken. He was a young physician. His name was, was William Coley or Bill Coley. And this patient just stayed in his conscience for a long time. And he became really obsessed with what could I have done differently to take this healthy young woman and save her life? What could he have done differently? So he started going to the library in the basement of his college or the basement of his hospital, which was Memorial Hospital in New York City. And he's sitting in the library and looking up case histories of patients that had had the same disease. And he came upon a study in which, or an example situation where an individual had, um, had basically the diagnosis of the same disease but had suffered a terrible bout of scarlet fever. And after the patient survived scarlet fever, the cancer went away. And he had an epiphany that, well, maybe the infection caused the tumor to go away. Maybe the immune system, he didn't really know it as that because the immunology, as you know, is a very recently uh, described scientific field. But maybe the, the patient's defenses had kicked in and, and now killed the tumor. He went to great length to find this individual um, in New York City. Now, this is the days before the internet and all the different opportunities from that, but he was able to track down both the patient and he was able to track down other patients who had the same disease and he would basically go to their houses, infect them. After he got their permission, he would infect them with um, 
the bacterium that causes scarlet fever. And in, in some cases, they did much better. And that was the early foundation of immune therapy. Now, the other part of the story is that this, this young lady, uh, Bessie Daschle is her name, who had died, this patient that had made such an impact on Coley, her best friend happened to be a young teenage boy by the name of John D. Rockefeller Jr. And he was the inheritor of the Rockefeller fortune. And um, un perhaps unsurprisingly, he was very heavily impacted because he and this girl, Rockefeller Jr. was, was very uh, shy. And this girl was his best friend in the whole world. And when she died, his world shattered. He, he was supposed to go to um, college on the East Coast. He didn't. He was going to just drop out of life. And he eventually decided to you know, go back to school. But he, was, he dedicated his life to, to using the fortunes of his family to promote medical research and specifically cancer research. Wow. I mean, there, there's so many things we can learn from that. I think many of us who have a science background have at least been introduced to Coley, but certainly had no idea the efforts that he went to um, to uh, really impact the lives of, of these patients. And um, certainly we owe a, a great deal to the Rockefellers as well. Many of us have had lives shattered by cancer, um, but few of us have had the resources uh, to be as impactful as this family. Absolutely. So, I, go ahead. I was going to say, Coley himself was completely forgotten uh, by all but his daughter. And his daughter uh, ended up realizing that so he had devoted his life to developing what he called what's called Coley toxins that would stimulate the immune system and kill cancer. And they were even used clinically in the United States. But ironically, his uh, home organization, the Memorial, what's, what's now known as Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, had received um, a large financial grant to focus on radioactive uh, x-ray treatments of cancer and um, basically abandoned coletoxin altogether, and the world forgot about him. His daughter, uh, a woman by the name of Heli Coley Knotts, uh, rediscovered her father's work put together an enormous amount of medical records in support of his work and reintroduced the concept of immune therapy. And um, it took off from there. So it's both Coley and his daughter that are responsible for these incredible breakthroughs. You know, one of the things that you wrote about, uh, which really caught my eye, is the amount of time that it's taken. I thought you you did a really lovely job taking us through the historical um, both breakthroughs and setbacks that have kind of plagued, and we'll get back to that in a second, but plagued immunotherapy. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting that you wrote is that um, the ACS itself uh, shelved Coley's toxins um, to our list of unproven methods of cancer management. Um, that was in 1965. So we now find ourselves, though, in what you term a revolution in immune oncology. I think it'd be interesting for you to take us a little bit beyond the book um, and share maybe what are your hopes for the next 10, 20, 50 years uh, as we think about immune oncology and, and how it can impact patients. Absolutely. We are in the early days of successes. We are seeing these amazing stories of people that are essentially cured of the disease. The most famous, arguably, is Jimmy Carter who was given days to live and was given these immune therapies and is now, I think as of last week, 
became the oldest living U.S. president in history, and he's still kicking. The future, though, is that only roughly a third of the patients that are treated with these immune therapies will actually respond to them. When they respond, it tends to be dramatic and as dramatic as what you've seen with, with Jimmy Carter. What we need to do in the, in the coming days and weeks and months is to expand both the fraction of patients that respond to therapy and the, and the sheer number of patients that are given the therapy. So we're, we're in the early days still. We've had remarkable, dramatic successes with metastatic melanoma. And we're starting to see these with other solid tumors and leukemias. And I think the, the future is going to be a matter of both expanding the um, tumor types that are targeted, the cancer types, and, the, and improving the fraction of patients that have positive responses. So in a slightly different kind of venue, if you know, we spend a lot of our time talking to individuals who've been impacted by cancer, either cancer patients or survivors or, you know, just folks who love them. And one of the challenges, I think, is to frame immunotherapy in a way that patients understand the potential and don't give up kind of on that potential as we try to thread the needle of cancer immunotherapy. Um, is there something that you would appreciate us sharing uh, with individuals impacted by cancer specifically about immunotherapy? Absolutely. I think there, there is both a positive and a cautionary tale to tell. One is that we are learning more and more about immunotherapy by the day. Uh, the number of new medicines, and this is part of what I do at WashU, we're analyzing the medicines that are introduced into the clinic and being tested experimentally, that number is, is burgeoning, uh, in the, especially in the area of immune oncology. So the positive is that if you had a bad experience, meaning it didn't work uh, with your first immune therapy, don't give up. It may be that it just wasn't the right cocktail, wasn't the right medicine, um, and we're learning as we go. But I think the learning curve is such that we're, we're qu quickly accelerating this. The cautionary tale is that we're unharnessing the real power of the immune system to target cancer, and an inevitable outcome is going to be an increase in some people of certain autoimmune disorders. Um, it could be rheumatoid arthritis, or it could be um, even worse diseases. But I think we just have to make sure that everyone understands both the positives and the negatives. Um, and that is, uh, I think, a moving forward, we still have much to learn. So I'm really interested in understanding how your role as an author, which we might consider maybe your night job, your middle of the night job, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, how has it impacted your day job? I mean, you've had a really fantastic career and, and I'm certainly you are busy now and it sounds like you're exploring some really interesting things around technology and how to bring technologies from bench to bedside. So are, can you see threads that tie those two together? Absolutely. So I that actually every book that I've written has been a subject area that I'm actively working on uh, or have in the past. And then that's important because the threads that join all of that are the fact that we are in the midst scientifically of one of the most innovative and entrepreneurial um, periods in history. Uh, the new medicines, uh, the new scientific breakthroughs, and the, our ability to translate these into real-life cures or treatments is such that we've never seen before. Um, at the same time, ironically, um, the American economy is experiencing a bit of a um, 
shortfall in entrepreneurship compared to our past. So it's part of what I am interested in doing both professionally and in my books is saying, hey, look, you know, this, there are incredible opportunities. Uh, two days ago, I was giving a talk to a few hundred students of pharmacology, and I said to them, yes, there are real concerns about the future of medicine, but you all are going to figure it out. And not only are you going to make people's lives better, but you might become very, very wealthy in the process. Um, and so there are, I think, great incentives and opportunities that right now that we have not experienced before. And that's basically why I write these books. So one of the things I'd love to know is if you had the ear and you will through this podcast of ACS postdocs and young investigators, so new PIs, what would you share with them? I mean, what's your, hey, look, what are the incredible opportunities that maybe uh, are available now that weren't available when you were in those same positions that you would really say, turn your eyes to this? And also, I'd love to know if you have some advice to share if they have their own creative explorations they'd like to make. How do you get started? How do you write that first word, that first sentence? Well, uh, so as far as the entrepreneurship side, um, what I always tell people, and I go around and I give talks on entrepreneurship, usually internally here at Washington University, but increasingly outside as well. And what I tell people is don't just be looking for the new whiz-bang gadget. Uh, oftentimes, scientific researchers in particular think, well, we've got to come up with the most technically complex opportunity in the world. And I point out in my talks that um, a company called Zenny um, revolutionized medicine by providing glasses for $5.95. And that will have as much of an impact as anything else uh, that's a big new whiz-bang gadget. And so what I really tell people to do is look at where are the opportunities? Where is it that you think that there's an improvement that could be made to do something better or cheaper or faster? And it doesn't have to be a whiz-bang gadget. So I think that's something that we, all of us in the, in, on the scientific and the academic side, tend to forget, is that the, you know, the group that came up with Zenny not only, again, had a very nice entrepreneurial opportunity and, and will make enormous amounts of money on it, but they're also doing an incredible public health service by providing a low-cost eye care. So think of those ideas is what I, I tell people. As far as someone who's thinking about writing a book, or, or coming down with that type of a project, I would suggest, again, look for something that you're interested in where no one's done it before, or maybe it was done so long ago that it's way out of date, and ask the question, what can I convey that hasn't been conveyed previously? One of the trends I can see throughout your career is that you have gone after those opportunities, and it, it seems like your motto could be, Something in the realm of, you know, I'm just trying to do things that make the world a better place. Um, your world is, has been, I guess, oncology and um, everything you're doing um, is moving us closer and closer and closer to the day when we're all out of work. So we, we really appreciate that. We're grateful, actually. So thank you. And I, I have one more question. Um, you have spent a lot of time um, volunteering for the American Cancer Society. We're also grateful for that. And I guess I'd like to know why you do that. What, what is it about the ACS that resonates with you? I'm happy for that relationship, um, but I'd be interested to know uh, how do you carve out time for us? Well, it's, it's a, a passion and the passion is both why I have worked on cancer and why I volunteer for ACS. 
And I actually discuss it at the beginning of the book, and that is that cancer has devastated my family um, on both my mom's and my father's side. But in particular, um, it turns out that I come from a family that has a particularly notorious cancer mutation that, um, and luckily I was spared, but many of my family members were not. And so, you know, it really comes down oftentimes to when you're growing up, you know, what were, what were the influences around you? And, and I lost far too many uh, family members to cancer. Well, Michael, we are so excited about you, about your work, and certainly about this latest book. And um, now that uh, we know it's your third, we'll be looking forward to a fourth. So best of luck to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the All opportunity right. to talk. Take care. Bye-bye.